0: never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have $7.7 trillion worth of economic events that are going to hit America in the gut. This is An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun, President and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, the free market voice, the free market voice. of the U.S., Enhancing and protecting private wealth, Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with
1: Gary Rathbun.
0: This is our country.
1: Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathbun. And I got to tell you, I am glad to be here. Glad to be here because ten years ago this week, Al Gore said the Earth would be done. We'd all be dead. Ten years ago on the 28th of January, he uh, he said we we would be done. That uh, there'd be no planet left to save. It'd be a total frying pan, quote unquote, and uh, we'd all be gone. So been holding my breath literally for ten years and uh, still here, still here. So. Uh, I'm sure that very soon, uh, Mr. Gore will come out with a new prediction of when we're all going to die a horrible, gooey death, and we'll start the clock countdown again. But uh, in the meantime, I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be anywhere because I fully anticipated, I believed him, I fully anticipated that we would be gone. Just being facetious, you know that, right? Right. Okay. A few weeks ago, we talked about... President Obama's executive order on uh, increased background checks and that kind of stuff, his new attack on the Second Amendment and gun control when he came back from vacation, gave his State of the Union address, and then uh, a couple days later he issued this executive order. Now, we talked about this, and one of the things that bothered me wasn't so much the increased background checks, uh, although that bothered me. But the other aspect was everybody who sells a gun, one gun, would have to get an FFL, federal firearms license, and and go through all the costs and scrutiny and all that kind of stuff, essentially asking the government's permission to sell a piece of personal property. What really bothered me in that legislation was the comments about mental health. Remember he said that uh, they were going to make it so doctors could, wasn't required to yet, but could report mentally ill patients to the FBI under this new rule and wouldn't be subject to lawsuit via the HIPAA rules, the privacy rules of your medical file. And I said, you know, I I see a real problem with this because, according to the government, we're all mentally ill. They also put in there that, uh, for an example, if... You're on Social Security and you have someone pay your bills for you. Manage your money that you are not qualified to own a gun. So simply having somebody pay your bills forces you to give up your constitutional rights. Well, this week, this week, I found some disturbing news that uh, I wanted to share with you. There's several dots to connect here. One is... President Obama's actions, okay, under the name of reducing gun violence, but it's really to uh, uh, hi- inhibit your Second Amendment rights. But there's a uh, CNN report I read this week uh, put out by the U.S. Preventative Services Tax Force. Now, that is not a government agency. It's simply a task force. But the government listens to them. They came out this week and said that everybody, every adult in America should be tested, ready, for depression, especially pregnant women and new moms. Depression is a terrible thing in this country. Many people suffer from depression and aren't getting treatment, so we got to help these people. Right. Don't think I don't think this isn't about control. Doctors are going to be required, your primary care physician eventually will be required to ask you a series of questions, and depending on your answers, could determine whether you suffer from depression. Now, we've seen people out in California, what happens if the government finds out they're taking medication for depression or have been diagnosed with depression. They come and take their guns. we've got stories it's there this is i'm not being facetious i'm not being predictive it's happened so now this task force comes out and says everybody needs to be treated everybody and not only treated diagnosed by your doctor and treated but then reported now the next dot in the line is FBI this week also came out and said they're going to halt background check appeals. So you go to buy a gun. uh, The uh, person selling it to you, the store, whatever, puts you in for one of these background checks with the FBI before you're allowed to buy a gun. And it comes back wrong. You're denied. Well, now you cannot appeal that denial. Right now, there's 7,100 Americans in limbo as to whether the government will allow them to buy a gun. So the FBI makes an error. Somebody makes an error. You're not able to get your gun. You can't appeal. You are stuck, my friend. So don't think, once again, all these things are not connected. They are connected. Now, question is, what happens if people simply refuse to go to the doctor? Next step, you watch, mark my words, within the next few minutes, somebody is going to float the balloon of making it mandatory that every person in the United States see their doctor at least once a year. Certainly if you're on Obamacare or anything like that, they're going to require you to go once a year. So they're going to force us all to go see our doctor eventually. They're going to get their way if we Don't do something and do something soon. The FBI said they're temporarily suspending appeals because they're getting so many uh, requests for background checks. They don't have the personnel don't have the personnel to do the background checks. Now, in Lowell, Massachusetts, this week, city council came out and approved. uh, If you want a handgun permit in that city, you have to write an essay, submit it to the bureaucrats with $1,100 in fees for training and stuff. And if your essay passes, uh, they'll issue you a permit to buy a gun. So now you got to write an essay and have some bureaucrat approve it before you're allowed to exercise your constitutional rights. My question is, this is uh, prejudiced against illiterate people. What if you're illiterate? What what uh what if you can't write? Then we're gonna have to have government people to write the essay for you. So uh all this is connected, my friends, and private property is the basis of economics. Second Amendment is the basis of private property. Coming up next, I am talking to Denish D'Souza, author of the uh the, the, the new book, Stealing America, What My Experience with Criminal Gangs Taught Me About Obama, Hillary, and the Democratic Party. That's next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun.
0: An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun.
1: Joining me now is Dinesh D'Souza. He's a uh, author of several books, including America, Imagine a World Without Her, and Obama's America, Unmaking the American Dream. He's also a filmmaker of the breakout documentary 2016, Obama's America. He's got a new book out called Stealing America, What My Experience with Criminal Gangs Taught Me About Obama, Hillary, and the Democratic Party. Dinesh, welcome to An Economy One. Hey, it's a pleasure. Good to be on the show. I uh, really enjoyed reading your book. And one of the things I found very interesting was the similarity between the people you met when you were in confinement and the politicians today. Other than the colorful language, how similar are they with today's politicians?
2: Well, I got uh, an exposure to the criminal underclass because the Obama administration went after me for exceeding the campaign finance laws. I donated money to a college friend of mine uh, over the campaign finance limit, and I got eight months of overnight confinement. Now, in this confinement center were all kinds of hoodlums. (laughs) I mean, guys who had done time for armed robbery, um, drug smugglers, coyotes, um, one guy who was in for attempted murder, the whole gamut. Wow. And, uh, and as I began to talk to these guys, get to know them, I realized that there's a weird similarity between them and the politicians. Basically, the similarity is this, that the criminal underclass is made up of small fry. Those guys do petty intimidation, robbery, whereas the politicians do major intimidation. Uh, they rob the treasury. They loot the taxpayer. Uh, and they, they're able to do it while pretending to be the good guys. Whereas at least the criminal underclass, when they hold up a grocery store, don't act like they have a halo for doing it.
1: And that's one of the the interesting things you talk about is everything that some of us look at and read indicate that most of the guys in jail, they admit their innocence. That's just not the case uh, from your experience, unlike the politicians that are all innocent and have have our uh, best interest in mind.
2: What I think is um, remarkable about politicians is their chutzpah. You know, so here's uh, Harry Reid. Uh, He takes money from his campaign finance fund uh, to give gifts to his daughter or granddaughter for her wedding. Now, this is blatant abuse of the uh, election laws. And yet, no investigation, no prosecution, no conviction. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so the Obama administration, they're supposed to be the custodian of Lady Justice. But Lady Justice is always winking when it comes to the offenses
1: of Obama and his friends. In talking about the theft of the country, you tell us that you're referring to the internal theft by the democratic political process rather than a dictatorship process. Can you clarify what you mean there? Because that's a little, a little puzzling or can be.
2: Yeah, the phrase of stealing America refers to two things. I mean, first it refers to the fact that politicians like Hillary have been able to amass enormous personal wealth. Mm -hmm. The the Clintons went from zero to $200 million in a very short time. Their foundation is over $2 billion. Now, normally in America, you can only make that kind of money if you invent the iPhone or start some kind of a transformative new type of business. Well, they didn't do that. So how did they get all that money? Well, the answer is they figured out how to make policy and government uh, how to collect money through the political process. So that's the first part of Stealing America. It's ripping off the system and getting rich. Uh, now the second uh, theme of Stealing America is how the wealth of America, the wealth of private industry, the the wealth that is in people's bank accounts and college savings funds and mortgages, how the uh, progressives from Obama to Hillary have been figuring out how to confiscate and control and appropriate that wealth for their own purposes. Uh, and that is a major ripoff that's been going on through the democratic process, using voters as instruments in order for, to create progressive, to expand progressive power and self-enrichment.
1: Now, you, you spend a lot of time talking about that, and you, you spend a lot of time talking about the influence of uh, Saul Alinsky on President Obama and, and Hillary Clinton and how his tactics are constantly being used and even, uh, and I never drew this connection either, even as tactics were part of the 2008 housing crisis and that being a motivation to steal money from banks and, and who was doing the stealing and, and what was their motivation behind that?
2: Well, you know, Alinsky has written a couple of books that have been widely discussed, and they talk about his community activist strategy. Mm -hmm. But the really interesting part of Alinsky is rarely discussed, and that is that Alinsky was kind of a gangster. He was a petty thief on the streets of Chicago. He later fell in with a series of criminal gangs, ultimately ending up with the Al Capone gang. And that's basically where he learned his political lessons. He would see the mafia shake down people for money, and Alinsky goes, how can I do that without running the risk of getting knocked off? (laughs) Uh, And so he came up with the idea of politics. If you can intimidate people through the political process and get them to pay you, then ultimately you can get rich without facing the danger that you'll end up with a bullet in your head. Uh, And so Alinsky then became a model and inspiration for people as diverse as Jesse Jackson, uh, Barack Obama, and Hillary Clinton. Uh, Obama had no ties to Chicago, but kept going back to Chicago because he, he knew that Alinsky was a major con man and he wanted to learn these con man techniques. And similarly, Hillary, who wrote her undergraduate thesis at Wellesley College on Alinsky, wanted to master what Alinsky had to teach her.
1: Is part of that creating crises so that you can take advantage of them? I mean, Rahm Emanuel. Uh, uh, Rahm never Emanuel
2: let... or Bill de Blasio in New York. Look, yeah. the Alinsky approach a little different than what Hillary and Obama have been doing. They've, been, in a sense, advanced beyond Alinsky because Alinsky was an outside guy who would try to threaten and intimidate corporations or city officials, mm-hmm. like, like the Daily people in Chicago or Eastman Kodak in Rochester, New York. What Hillary and Obama have done is they've realized, what if we can get inside the government and then use the agencies of the government to intimidate other people? So let's use the EPA, the IRS, the FBI. I found in my own case, for example, that you know, a whole squadron of FBI agents is deployed to read all my books, look at my bank statements, check out my tax returns. There's a kind of unbelievable deployment of power against political critics, which you need the the, the, the unlimited resources of the federal government in order to be able to marshal. So poor Linsky never became such a big time hoodlum as we have now seen with the, with his with his, with his mentor with his with his students, uh, Obama and now Hillary.
1: So the students have become the master, kind of in in Alinsky tactics and using the government to create that fear and and intimidation in us.
2: Yes, and also to profit immensely. I mean, look at the, you know, we've had petty corruption at the local level in American politics before. Tammany Hall was a big racket in New York City. Even the Daily Machine was corrupt in Chicago. But we've never had a Secretary of State who figured out how to extract money from Russian oligarchs how to get money out of Canadian billionaires who are investing in minerals in Africa, how to intercept aid aid money that is designated for starving people in in Haiti, and to have that money end up in the coffers of the Clinton Foundation. So Mm -hmm. Hillary Clinton and Bill are in a league of their own in figuring out how to uh, run not just an American political ripoff, but a global political ripoff.
1: Wow. Now, something we haven't heard about, an organization we haven't... I haven't heard much about the last few years, and that's ACORN. They haven't gone away, I'm sure. How big of a role does ACORN play in the overall plan for helping these people steal America?
2: Well, ACORN sort of took a big hit when when they were uh, exposed um, a couple of years ago, and so they've had to pull back a little bit. But the Obama network of community activists, these are basically local thugs. Uh, who use political intimidation at the local level. This network has only expanded. I think it's Obama's ambition when he leaves office to become ultimately the, the community organizer of America. So Bill Clinton is trying to be the community organizer of the world, and Obama's trying to be the community organizer of America. Neither of these two guys... Productively, in the capitalist sense, knows how to make a nickel. Right. They can't run a grocery store or a dry cleaner, but they know how to use the political process in order to gain power
1: and money for themselves. And we'll be back with more of my conversation with Dinesh D'Souza right after this. Gary Rathman, an economy of one.
0: Economy of one with Gary Rathbun.
1: I'm speaking with Dinesh D'Souza, author of the book Stealing America, What My Experience with Criminal Gangs Taught Me About Obama, Hillary, and the Democratic Party, and about what he learned after spending some time in a criminal detention center. You know, one of the, the scams you talk about uh, is the progressives trying to destroy capitalism. Why is capitalism such an evil concept to these people?
2: Well, I think the, it's not so much that they want to destroy it. What they actually want to do is to control the wealth that capitalism generates. So they want somebody else to to create wealth, and they then want to come in and take it. So they're thieves in the classic sense. Um, you know, socialism traditionally has involved the government actually running, nationalizing the banks, mm-hmm. running the energy sector. But for Obama and Clinton, it's too much trouble for them to go dig. You know, minerals out of the ground or figure out how to do fracking and get oil. They don't want to do it. They want the private sector to do it. But once you and I have worked hard and built up a nest egg and put money aside, then these progressives want to come in and take it or at least take control of it so that they're able to tell us what to do with it. So we've seen under Obama the government expand its power over banking, over insurance, over the automobile sector, over healthcare, every hospital, every hospice, every doctor. Now they're trying to move into education. So these are all parts of the private sector where great wealth is available, great wealth is created, and ultimately what the progressives are saying is you create it, and
1: then we'll come and tell you what to do with it. And it seems disheartening to me because they often get players in the private sector to play along with them. I mean, you spend some time talking about Warren Buffett and some of these people that have created tremendous wealth, and they seem to move over to the progressive side. Is that guild? Is it another way of allowing them to steal part of America? I mean, what's the motivation there for these people?
2: The, the motivation is that Obama is happy to enrich some people in the private sector as long as they're willing to be part of the progressive racket. So a really good example would be in Obamacare, where Obama pretends like he's conspiring with the American people against the health insurance companies. But in reality, it's the opposite. He's conspiring with the health insurance companies against the American people. Now, how? Because Obama goes to the health insurance CEOs, and he basically says, listen, i got a deal for you. I'm going to increase control and regulation of your company, and you're not going to like that. But I'm also going to force millions of Americans to buy insurance who don't want to buy insurance. And that's going to mean new customers, hundreds of millions of dollars in profits for you. So I want you to support Obamacare, because ultimately what I'm doing is I'm arm-wrestling the American taxpayer and taking money that's going to be, go ultimately into your pocket. So now you can see why it becomes in the financial interest for the health, health insurance companies to line up behind Obamacare because he is ultimately helping them as long as they're willing to help him.
1: So the players are willing to play the game as long as the game is profitable. And, I mean, because we've seen companies now already, United Healthcare saying – you know, uh, where we may get out of the business. Is that part of the game? Is that the statement they put out so that they get another big check or another, another advantage to being part of Obamacare?
2: Well, Saul Alinsky once said that he could persuade a millionaire on Friday um, to uh, support a revolution on Saturday out of which he would make a profit on Sunday, even though he was going to be executed on Monday. (laughs) And so uh, part of what's going on here is that Obama and Hillary are trying to put that Alinskyite lesson into place. They're they're trying to con the private sector into supporting them, even though, of course, they have no long-term sympathy for these people. I don't think Obama has a a moment's compassion for the insurance companies. He's willing to be in bed with them as long as they're increasing his power. But once they've increased his power sufficiently, he's happy to tighten the noose around them. I mean, that happened, for example, with Lenin in the early days of the Soviet Union, where private sector people supported him, and then he got rid of all of them.
1: That's incredible. You know, I I want to switch gears just a little bit. It'll sound a little non sequitur, but you, you say in the book that the key to understanding the justice system in America is not necessarily based on justice, but how to extract the most money can you elaborate on that a little bit for us?
2: Yeah, I think in one of my chapters in, the, in Stealing America, I, I just basically just ask this question. What is the greatest, what is the most valuable thing the world has ever produced? Um, is, it, uh, you know, is it Fort Knox with all its gold? Uh, is it a particular invention like the automobile or the computer? No. The greatest, the most valuable thing the world has produced is the United States of America. Why? Because the United States of America has created this massive mound of wealth, some $75 trillion of wealth. And it's done it in a relatively short time. Now, my point is, when you have that big of an accumulation of wealth, the most clever thieves in the world are going to be interested. They're going to try to figure out, how do we take this wealth? We're not talking here about robbing Fort Knox, and we're not talking even about the federal government. The federal budget is about $3 trillion a year. We're talking about the whole wealth of the entire country. And that, I argue, is what the progressives have their eye on. They want to ultimately control all that wealth, including all the private wealth that we have in our own bank accounts, our own savings funds, and our own um, college tuition funds for our kids. They want to control all that wealth. So that's what this book is about. It's the the effort to steal the entire wealth of America in the name of social justice. Social justice is, you may say, the pitch. One thing I learned in the Mm -hmm. confinement center is that all criminal scams have a pitch. If you want to rob an old lady and you want to break into her apartment, it really helps if you can sell her on a scam where she lifts the latch and then you can kick in the door and go take her stuff. But what you say to her, the sweet talk that you give her at the door to convince her to lift the latch, that's called the pitch. So social justice is the progressive pitch in order to pull off the heist.
1: How has this whole experience, I mean, I read all your writings in the past, I've gone to your movies, and, and i followed you very closely because I think you're, you're very wise and interesting. How has this whole experience changed your opinion of President Obama from the time you made your films about his history and and motivation to now?
2: Well, I think in in this book, in in the last year, I've begun to see the the kind of gangsterism of the government much more clearly. Mm. Uh, I used to think the United States was in some fundamental way in its operations different from countries like Mexico or Venezuela or India, where I grew up. Uh, but, but although my love of America is undiminished, my love of the American dream, of the American ideas, uh, of, the, of all the people who start out penniless and work hard and make their way up the ladder, that's the America I love. But the American government, uh, even Obama, I mean, my earlier movie on Obama focused on the anti-colonialism of Obama. Mm-hmm. And while we agree or disagree with that, that is, that is an ideology. That is a set of beliefs. I think what I've realized since then is that there is a sort of lawlessness and gangsterism about Obama, about Hillary, and so that you can't understand those people solely in terms of an ideology, you also have to look at them in terms of what are the techniques that they're willing to use in order to achieve their objectives.
1: In your last chapter, you talk about cracking the con and that the, the, the thieves have one vulnerability and that's that they have to be elected. How do we crack the con?
2: Well, this is a a con that operates through the democratic process. It requires the collaboration of voters in order to pull it off. And happily, this is an election year. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't just mean that we should all uh, be vigilant and go out and vote. I also mean that we are also very powerful these days using technology through social media in being able to influence others. If you've got 500 friends on Facebook, for example, you're a little publisher with a small magazine, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so I'm calling on people to uh, read my book for sure, but use it as a handbook uh, to then connect with other people and build, if you will, movements that can influence American politics and transform this country, transform this country right back into the principles that it was that made it great.
1: We're speaking with Dinesh D'Souza, author of the new book, Stealing America, Why My Experience with Criminal Gangs Taught Me About Obama, Hillary and the Democratic Party. Dinesh, uh, this is a terrific book. You're a great American. It's been a real thrill and a true honor for me to spend a little time with you today, and I hope we get the chance to chat with you again soon. I look forward to it. Thank you. Coming up next, I want to talk about a moment in history and a current moment, both dealing with character.
0: An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun.
1: Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, not many people remembered this, but uh, uh, it was something that interested me. Has interested me my whole life, so uh, I remember. And that is this week on uh, January twenty eighth, thirty years ago. Gosh, it's hard to believe it's been that long. January twenty eighth, nineteen eighty six, is when the space shuttle exploded. Remember that? That was a long time ago, 30 years this week. And, and I got to thinking about that, and it was six astronauts and a school teacher from uh, New Hampshire, uh, space shuttle challenger. The, the teacher was Krista McAuliffe. Remember her? Uh, she's a real sweetie, media darling. And uh, we watched that uh, space shuttle take off, And within just a very few minutes of it taking off, it exploded over the Atlantic. It lifted off from uh, the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. And uh, that was shocking. For weeks, we were glued to the news about what caused it. And uh, you remember it was O-rings. There was a faulty O-ring in the solid uh, rocket fuel boosters. That apparently failed because of the the colder weather. Now I don't know if any of you have been to the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. If not, I would encourage you to do that. It's uh, really incredible. They got a space shuttle there that you can walk inside of and see how these astronauts live in space on this thing. It's absolutely incredible. There's just no way I could live in that small of space. With another person, let alone five, six, seven other people. Absolutely incredible. But, you know, President Obama pretty much shut down the space shuttle program. And you remember it was a big deal. I, I'm my brain here and I don't have the articles in, in front of me. But you remember he felt that NASA ought to focus more on um, building relationships with Muslims than on exploring space. Now, from the time i was little which was many 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 years ago uh i remember following the space operations i mean nasa was a was a big deal used to watch every rocket launch had all the models of all the rockets uh all the books on space and and planets and that kind of stuff it was just fascinating to me and and you remember president kennedy i remember hearing his speech as a as a kid, that by the end of the decade, we will put a man on the moon. And we did. That was uh, in the 60s. Now, we haven't put anybody there since, but uh, truth is, we don't have to. Nobody else has either. And we were the first, and our footprint and flag is still there uh, on the moon. And it, I have to laugh at some of the people that that say it was all a conspiracy, that we didn't really go to the moon. Uh, yeah, we did. We were there. I remember that. It seems like it was in July. Um, seems like it was in July when when they landed on the moon. Once again, I'm just recalling this from memory. It doesn't really uh, matter what month it was. The fact is, we were there. And to me, that that represents the greatness of America that, that we're not really feeling in recent years. And, and I'm not blaming that on... President Obama alone I'm, I'm, I'm not saying he's innocent in that either but it seems like the last few decades um, since the space shuttle blew up we haven't haven't had that that national pride that feeling of greatness that that we're leading the world in in all areas and I think that's the part of the education system out there that America is not better than anybody else when we really are and i don't i mean i do understand why this is being taught but uh, we're, we're seeing the results of that kind of attitude and and uh thinking uh, on a daily basis i think we ought to get back to that visionary thinking that greatness that goes beyond what is described as the the main problems uh facing our country and facing the world today it is not climate change not global warming um i i could spend a week talking about the idiocy around global warming and and the heat going into the oceans and and the ice uh polar ice caps melting and all that kind of stupid stuff and it is not settled science it is not a foregone conclusion that that man is causing the earth to warm nothing like that so i'm not going to get into that but you know it seems like every day we're we're bombarded with uh immigrants with school lunches with common core with uh presidential candidates and and the goofy things they say and do and uh uh, you know, and and I fall into that. I mean, I spend a lot of time talking about my constitutional rights and how every day my liberty is being eroded, uh, just a little bit more. Uh, and I think part of the problem is we have no grand vision uh, ahead of us. We have we have nothing uh, ahead of us. It's it's crisis management. It's doom and gloom. We're gonna we're gonna be bankrupt. We got a trillion dollars of of, uh, unfunded promises that we're going to have to pay for. We got 19 trillion of debt. We can't sustain that. We're going down the tubes. You know, I, I see all that negative every day because I do radio, uh, every day, hours of radio and it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it, it's easy to, to buy into the old thought of ignorance is bliss. There are some days when I wish I didn't read all that I read and see all of the stuff that I see in, in preparing for the radio shows. Um, where is that grand vision? Where, where 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 is the thought process that we as a nation are great and not only have done great things, but will continue to do great things? And here's a great vision for our future. And it doesn't include destroying ourselves so other people can have everything we we've got. I mean, it's it's uh, leadership. Uh, America has to to lead the way. Yes, thirty years ago, the space shuttle Challenger exploded. It was a defect. It was something the engineers uh, didn't catch or thought were fine and didn't compensate for weather, or it might have just been one. Malfunctioning O-ring that nobody miscalculated, it just was. But it was a vision for the entire country. And just like in the sixties when President Kennedy talked about a vision to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. We did that. You know, there's more technology in your car than we had available to send a man to the moon, land him on the surface, and bring him home safe. There's more technology in your iPad than it took to put a man on the moon. More technology, probably, in your iPhone than it took to put a man on the moon. Where is this grand vision now? Where is the leadership that will keep America great, make us great, and create a great vision you look at all the presidential candidates and they talk about making america great but they don't share a vision they talk about making america great by fixing all the screw-ups of previous administrations and previous congresses i want a president that as leadership is strong definitive and has a long term vision for this country. Those astronauts and the school teacher were the epitome of character. Most recently I saw another story about character that you wouldn't normally look at, and that was Peyton Manning. Peyton Manning's had a couple of bad years, he had some injuries, had uh, some bad articles written about him, accusing him of steroids and and uh, growth hormones. And what did he do? Kept his mouth shut, didn't whine about it. He gave one interview, said, this is what I have to say about it. It's not true. I'm not talking about it anymore. He got relegated to backup quarterback of the Denver Broncos. That is somewhat humiliating in that role. So, uh, But when the time came, the team needed him. He was ready. Went out, played, won the game, won the next games, taking them to the Super Bowl. Good for him. I hope he wins. And I don't really have a horse in the game. No uh, pun intended to the Broncos. But uh, shows character. Shows character and stamina. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our... The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor.